All right, before we get started with this podcast, we need to talk about something. Friends, it, it feels like the whole world can literally change for the worse overnight. You're following the news stories. With what's likely coming for our country, there is one thing you should do, and that's prepare. When you're more self-reliant, you're closer to freedom from any national crisis or job loss or economic downturn. But where do you start, and who can you trust? Let me make this clear. Building an emergency food supply to feed yourself and your family is a wise first step. And our friends at My Patriot Supply will help you prepare. Get four weeks emergency food supply for only $99, shipped free. That's 140 adult servings of easy to prepare food order today 888-457-3453 888-457-3453 or go online at preparewithcr.com that's preparewithcr.com build your emergency food supply for only $99 limit two units per caller 888-457-3453 or online at preparewithcr.com that's 888-457-3453 or at preparewithcr.com. All right, now let's get to the podcast. It's time to end Obamacare now. For the past eight years, we have been suffering under President Obama's ridiculous policies, the worst of which, Obamacare. And you know why it's bad. It raised premiums, it decreased patient choice, and it made people even more dependent on government. But when President-elect Trump takes office on January 20th, we can finally repeal Obamacare. But there are liberals in D.C. who are conspiring to save it. And the only way we can stop them is if we get grassroots activists like you to stand up to them and pledge to help President-elect Trump repeal Obamacare on day one. So stand with President-elect Trump and go to www.repealobamacarenow.com. Get involved. Help repeal Obamacare. If you don't act now, we won't be able to make a difference. If you want lower premiums, better health care, we need to repeal Obamacare on day one. And that's why you need to go to www.repealobamacarenow.com. It's time to take advantage of this historic opportunity and see how freedom works. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Happy Tuesday here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Let us know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address, so you can email us there. D-E-A-C-E, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at Steve Dace Show. Uh, later in this hour, we're going to talk about what it looks like when we actually govern ourselves uh, that's coming up here at the bottom of the hour. But, uh, gentlemen, I wanted to start off the top of the show tonight with a plea. Uh, and I, I think this last election cycle has proven that no matter where you came down on it, we've got to rethink a few things. Would we? Could we stipulate to that? <laughs> at least just a few. <laughs> All right. You've narrowed it down that so I, far? I, I decided to start with some low-lying fruit. There's, there's at least a few things I think we need to rethink. Um, fake news would be one. Uh, we've got a, I've got a story that I put up on our Facebook wall this morning 
that uh, one of the contributors over at Red State wrote about um, Gateway Pundit and some of these fake news sites that were just exposed as posting fake news constantly. I, I don't know how many times during the primary, Rob, you know, at Conservative Review had to, had to fact check Gateway Pundit. And if you're like, Steve, I've never heard you use that name on this show. I haven't heard you use that name on this show in, in a long time because we don't. We just wrote them all off. There's plenty of ways to support Trump over the left without lying to people and making, fake, making up fake news. At least I would hope there is. But there's several of these sites that that's all they did. And one of the gals over at Red State went after them. And several of their lies, and they got mad, so she exposed them some more. To me, this is, that's an example of what I think we need to do to clean up the mess here on our own side. That this last cycle either created, exposed, and maybe in some cases, a little of both. One of the things that um, I also think we need to address is something I've heard some prominent people in conservative media say in the past, and maybe in the past this was true. But if you guys ever heard prominent people on our side say stuff like, hey, if you want to know who the right candidate is, find out who drives the left the most nuts and support them. You guys heard stuff like that before? You yeah. Heard, you heard some of those lines, Definitely right? I have, yes. And in the past, maybe there was some truth to this, don't you think? Probably. Okay. You talked about that yesterday concerning people hungry for what ultimately was Trump. Yes. I mean, it's the same animal. Yes. This, but this, this idea... That, that we define ourselves, and this is really a big idea. What I'm going to talk about here to open the show tonight is, is one tentacle of this. But the big idea is we have to cease defining who we are for and what we are for by the reaction we have to those we are against. That has to end. Like, if you, like this Milo character is a reprobate. He's a soulless reprobate that needs a lot of prayer. He's a dark soul. Now, if you want to stand up for him because... Just because of those things I said are true doesn't mean he should be not given free speech as an American. I'll, I'll do the same with you. But, but, but we have a tendency to not be able to, to practice discernment as a species, I've noticed. And so because the left wants to shout him down, which is wrong, that therefore means he has somehow been canonized. He has somehow been beatified. He somehow isn't a moral reprobate. He somehow isn't a dark soul in, really need, in real need of prayer and guidance. Like Russia, like Assange, yes. like etc. Yeah, yes, because because again, we are we too often define ourselves by the op, by by what we think of our opposition, and then we love. We, we're not good at not doing that, but we're really good at complaining about. I'm tired of us only being defined by what we're against all the time. Uh I got nothing. I got you know. It's like a clip I saw today of a of a uh, Islamic businessman who is donating money to advocate the Jews being expelled from Palestine, and he's lamenting in this interview that people consider him to be an anti-Semite. Anybody? Self-aware much? Right? You know, it's like that scene in Exodus where Moses comes down from the mountain with the tablets and left Aaron in charge and looked at him like, you had one job? (laughs) You had one job, man. Bro! Bro! And Aaron looks back at him like, you mad, bro? I mean, you had one job! You had one job while I was gone. Just keep everybody in line. And it shouldn't be too hard. They just saw God perform all these miracles to get him this far. So just babysit this bunch until I come back. Comes back, man. They're having orgies, worshiping golden calves. And Aaron looks at him like, I don't know, man. These people threw me this gold. I just threw it in the fire. This calf came out. I got nothing for you. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you, man. I don't know what to tell you. 
So th- that's what we're like. Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, all I do is sit around and vent about the liberal media and the liberal this and liberal that. I don't ever, I don't ever actually fight for what I'm for. Gosh, I'm tired of being defined by what I'm against. I'm tired of being called anti this and anti that. Now, some of that, of course, is the opposition's fault. And we should not accept that premise. But when we behave in a way that reinforces their premise, it makes it very hard for others not to accept their premise. Am I on a roll so far? Yep. Good. Let's keep it going. This notion that people are good on our side and that ideas are good on our side because of how the left reacts has got to cease and desist. It just has to end. You've got to be a better critical thinker than that, guys. First of all, there are elements in both parties that make a living doing nothing but gaslighting and demagoguing everything the other side does. If Barack Obama had come to us and offered and, and said, if Barack Obama had come to us and said, you know what, you're right, we probably shouldn't sue nuns. We're going to get rid of all that stuff. There would be some high-trafficked websites on our side that would then turn right around and say, but you can't believe him because he was born in Kenya. That's what we would do. Or, am I lying? I'm absolutely certain. Of, of course we would. Meanwhile, there are people on the other side. Of, if, if, Trump, if Trump does to the rainbow jihad what Bill Clinton tried to do to the PLO, give them 90% of what they want. And of course, the PLO and Yasser Arafat walked away from that deal. But gave them, offered them 90% of what they want and simply said, we're going to give you everything you want. All you have to do is leave the churches alone. They're, they're people on their side, homophobic Republican. There's nothing he could give except change his party ID. And then suddenly he's the greatest, he's the hostess with the mostest. That is the dynamic that exists in our culture. And it's a dynamic largely created because the mainstream media, the fourth estate, failed to do its job of, of play referee, umpire, gatekeeper, skeptic, scrutinizer. Especially in this last administration where more than two dozen of them went and took jobs in the administration they were supposed to objectively cover. Almost 30 of them did. Several of them, several of them revolving door, went back to working in the media after working for this White House. And now the same media that did this is lamenting that Trump, that Trump is, stacking, might, is stacking the deck of his press conferences with the likes of jock sniffers like Matt Boyle over at Breitbart. Well, what'd you expect him to do? He saw you guys get away with it. How do you like them apples? Now, that's a fun take. It's true. It's also terrible for the future of our republic to behave this way constantly. And that's where we, the people, come in. We, we're going to have to demand more than itch my ears, rub my belly, pat me on the head, tell me what I want to hear. You want to have better government? You've got to be better. We have to be better. You want to know why Trump gave you the most banal promises he could possibly give you? Because that's all that you wanted. He's a businessman. If there were other things better that you wanted, that he would have needed to promise you to close the sale, he would have promised you those things. But you didn't want those things. You wanted slogans. Slogans were what you got. So you're saying, why pay somebody 20 bucks an hour when you can get away with basically paying 550 and that's winning exactly, anyways? And that's why he's a billionaire, yo. That's exactly right. Right. Because he didn't come into Iowa and hire 300 people for the caucuses and pay him 10 grand a month like Tim Pawlenty did. 
He went and found two or three people he thought were good, paid them whatever they wanted, made everybody else work for work in Penub, Buckwheat. And he did that all over the country. So if you proved if you were good, he paid you whatever it took to land you. But if you weren't, yeah, we'll take it for free. Thanks for the milk. And if you were Rudy Giuliani and Mike Huckabee and all these shills that went out there bending over backwards, pun intended, to in order to assume the position. He looked at you and said, remember when your mama told your told her daughters, don't ever give him the cow or buy, don't expect him to buy the cow if you give him the milk for free? Yeah, that. Thanks, though. See you on Fox. That's the way it works. We have got to stop defining what we think of our own ideas based on the level of opposition from the other side or the way they oppose. We've got to be better thinkers than this. There are, there are, there's literally nothing, nothing we could offer that many of their people would not oppose. And the same is true on the other side. I'll give you an, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about that happened to me just yesterday when we come back. Listening to Steve Dace. For such a time as this, Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. So. Let me give you an example of what I was just ranting about. It happened just yesterday on Twitter. Out of the blue, a conservative activist, I'm, I'm assuming he is, not familiar with him, I, I, you know, because if it's somebody I don't know, never heard of, a lot of times I'll, you know, check him out. Uh, and uh, he, this is not, so he's not a nobody. He had 10 to 15,000 Twitter followers, so he, he, has a, he has an audience. And he was, he could not believe that, that we didn't think a couple of the people being bandied about to be Trump's uh, replacement for Antonin Scalia were good enough. And before I could respond to him, because, you know, we have about 40,000 Twitter followers, which may seem like a lot to some of you, and it is. It's not as much as most of the other people in our industry have, but it's a lot. And I don't have the time to sit around and I don't literally have the time to monitor everybody that responds to us on social media. I just don't. You know, so I had meant to, I had flagged his tweet because, because, because he does have a following. So clearly several thousand people saw him ask me this question. I wanted to answer it. So before I could go back and answer his question, I noticed he had sent me a follow-up tweet. And the follow-up tweet was, how can these judge, how can these two justices not be good enough? They were Bill Pryor and Diana Sykes. How can they not be good enough? Look at the left's reaction to them. And he sent me a link from Think Progress. Think Progress has accused me of literally everything and right-wing watching these people have accused me of, of things that if they were true, we would be in prison for these things, guys. We'd be off the air if these things were true. They are a grievanced industry. Their job is everybody hates us unless the Democrats do it, then it's okay. The fact that we would take propaganda from the propagandist from the other side to determine whether the people we're advocating will hold the line for our side, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works, actually. 
The reality is, this Merrick character that they stalled his nomination from Obama, Trump could put Merrick up. I promise you. The next day, Think Progress will, will come out with all kinds of things. And then when you ask them, well, how come this didn't matter when Obama nominated him? You'll get crickets. That's the game, son. If we're really at a point now, I, I saw people say, the left's losing its mind over Betsy DeVos. Well, you know, there's a lot of things about her nomination I like. There's also some legit concerns. Really just how, when she says we're going to get rid of Common Core, given she's been an advocate for it in the past, does that, is that Washington we're going to get rid of it, meaning we're not? We're just changing the name or something? Or is that really getting rid of it, right? These are questions that should be answered. But they'll never get answered. Because everybody's too busy defending her from any level of scrutiny at all because of the ridiculousness of the other side. Again, this is another example of we, we don't spend nearly as much time positing and perpetuating and advancing what we're actually trying to conserve as much as we do chasing the tail of whatever rabbit trail the left throws out next that we want to blow up. That's not a movement. That's a reaction. We're, 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 not, we're not advocating anything. We're like an anti-itch cream. The left gives us a rash. We find the cream for it. That's not a cure. That's what we do. We play this game constantly. And then since the standard for Betsy DeVos, who I would vote for for education secretary based on what I've researched, and I have some concerns too, but I think she'd be, she'd be a dramatic upgrade of what we previously had. But that's, is it okay for her to answer a critical question or two from our actual vantage point? Do you think that's okay, guys? Can we, can we find out where she really stands on a couple of things? Or as long, because the left is a bunch of anti-Christian zealots, she somehow doesn't get any scrutiny at all. That's the game. And then we'll happen a year or two from now, since we didn't put her on the record, if she does do something that makes us concerned, you guys going to call shows like mine and say, why didn't anybody tell us about this? Uh, 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 yeah, uh, I got nothing. I got nothing for you. I don't know what to tell you. I cannot believe a guy with ten to 15,000 Twitter followers, sent to me, think progress as the plumb line for our own judicial nominees. Meanwhile, I don't have time nor the expertise to research these people's records. That's why we had Andy Schlafly on the show. On the show, He does. He provided information. It may or may not be correct. In fact, Ed Whalen at National Review disagrees with Andy. We invited him on. We were never able to follow up with him. But if we can, we'll put him on. Andy's information may be wrong. I don't know, but I do know this. I think we probably ought to find out what what the vetting people at National Review and Eagle Forum think of Trump's judicial nominees. Then think progress. Goodness. Trump could nominate David Souter. Think progress would call him a homophobe. Hell, Anthony Kennedy unleashed the rainbow jihad. Anthony Kennedy has done everything at the Supreme Court other than, I promise to be sodomized myself. He's done everything he could possibly do. And if if he wasn't a judge right now and Trump nominated him tomorrow, think progress would say he's just dreadful and terrible. You mean to tell me I have to tell some of you this? I really do. I really have to explain some of this to some of you. You really don't know that. Then we're doomed. (laughs) We're just doomed. If the only standard is, the other side doesn't like them, they must be great. The other side hates your guts.
Same John Lewis who says Trump's a racist for all his white nationalist race baiting said John McCain was a racist too. And so was Mitt Romney and so was George W. Bush. Why? Because they had an R. So they just became R stood for racist, not Republican. Reagan, who signed into law the MLK holiday, he was a racist too. They're all racists. Got to think bigger than this, guys, more critically than this. We are never going to defend, let alone advance what we believe in, gentlemen, if we continue to allow what the opposition we're up against thinks of us to define who we actually are, Todd. The people you're describing are basically Odell Beckham. The lament about Odell Beckham, why, why can't he just uh, shut up? He's so easy to poke, uh, to get off his game. You can. Josh Norman did that. Others have done that. Well, there's a reason. Odell Beckham does that because he probably enjoys that and likes that more than shutting up and just producing and getting in that end zone. I, I think that's the problem. We, it, we can't stop. We won't stop because a lot of people just like the game more. It, it, it's like uh, the, the policies in government. If you actually got rid of the problem you, came, you claim to need the government program for, you, you would be out of a job. They don't want that to happen. They want the problem to exist. Uh, progressivism, broadly speaking, the, the spiritual ethos of it has invaded our side of the ledger just as much as theirs. And that means our idol worship of the game, the self, is just as bad on our side, Steve. I've seen this enough. I mean, I, I don't have children of my own, obviously, but uh, children, when you let them go to a certain point, when you just give them everything that they want for a certain point, they don't start whining just to get what they want. They start whining just because it's fun, and I think that's part of, of what you're saying. We have too many childlike thinkers who claim to be adults in this country right now. And yet we want more self-government. Can we actually handle it if they gave it to us? You're listening to Steve Dace. For truth, justice, and the way America should be, The Steve Day Show. All right, back here on The Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Utah State Representative Ken Ivory is here with us because uh, he is making the rounds across the country and he has a stop here in our own backyard talking about the Convention of States. Ken, how are you? Stephen, great. Thanks for having me. So, Ken, before you came in, I, I was discussing one of the things that it's clear this last election shows we have to change on our side. And one of them is this notion that because the left hates it, it must be good. Right. You know, so I had somebody, um, even though I sent out some judicial research that people at the Eagle Forum did on some of the names that are being bandied about as Trump's uh, potential nominee to replace Antonin Scalia. So these are you know, like Andy Schlafly, who's an attorney, knows a lot more about this than I do. So I'd shared some of his information looking at some of these judges precedents. And I had a gentleman with several thousand Twitter followers, conservative activists come back at me with. 
I can't believe you think Trump's not these two candidates aren't potentially conservative enough. Look at what Think Progress thinks about them. <laughs> because, you know, listen, if, if, if this Merrick fellow that was denied Scalia's seat this past year, if that was Trump's nominee next week, Think Progress would be telling us that he's a terrible fascist who uh, wants to, um, you know, put everybody with a dissenting opinion on the left in prison. That's just the ga- way the game is played. But our side is so conditioned to define who we are by that which we're against that we don't ever really spend much time advancing what we're actually for, if you even know what that is anymore, which has me seriously doubting whether we are even capable of the kind of self-government that that the Convention of States wants to actually hand us. How would you respond to that? You know, it's a great question. We We have drifted very far, and so what you do is rather than throw your hands in the air and let the plane go out of control... You grab the wheel. My father was a pilot, mm-hmm. uh, and and we would fly over the Grand Canyon from Phoenix to Utah all the time. And he would always say, "Your engine just went out. Where are you going to land? You've got this much glide distance. Where are you going to put it down?" And he said, "Pilots perish when they panic. Fly the plane till it stops. You walk away. Constitutionally, it's not time to panic." Yeah, we've got some big problems. We've got big problems in education. We've got big problems in who we are as a people. Well, that's where you have leaders. There's nothing happening in our nation right now that leadership won't solve and and the leaders come from in our system deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed that is exactly what i'm afraid of at the moment well but right now you've got two million people like this young lady that's the state director for cos in iowa sarah haldeman i was talking to her last night i said tell me about why we have a declaration of independence why we have a constitution. She said, oh, well, that's easy. We have a declaration of independence for liberty. Secure those blessings of liberty. That's why we have a constitution. Well, how does it work? How does it do that? Well, you divide government. And if you divide government and then you limit the power of government, now that, that secures the liberty to the people so they can govern themselves. And here's a young lady who will tell you three, four, five years ago, she said, I didn't know any of this. And now engaging, learning by application, Steve, that's how we learn best. You don't learn golf by reading a book. You're not going to learn the Constitution by reading a book, but you're going to engage. And there are two million people right now growing at 30,000 a month that are learning the Constitution and self-government by engaging. Right now in Washington, uh, the whole Obamacare, are we going to really repeal it, get a kind of repeal it? Are we going to fully replace it, maybe not replace it, replace it later? It's this. It, it, it's the progressive dog whistle. There's this notion that government has to do something all of the time. So so let me put the same question I asked you a minute ago in a different context right in your own wheelhouse. What is your confidence level that the politicians on the state level, if we did return all this power to the states, what is your confidence level that the politicians on the state level, if that power was handed to them, it's easy to say limited government now when the feds can come anytime they want, threaten your governor with we're going to take your funding away and, and he surrenders on virtually anything you would take a stand on. Let's say we didn't have that dynamic and we actually did say we're going to give you guys the power back. What is the confidence that the state house politicians are any more able to say just because we can do a thing doesn't mean we should do that thing than the how than the, than the Capitol Hill politicians are? Great question. Is it going to solve all the problems of course not there there is there is mess and problem and confusion with government but when you do have those problems you've got an outrage that shows up in my case right on the salt lake city steps what's funny is todd is looking at me like hey wait a minute i thought i was the cos skeptic around here you're asking all of my questions (laughs) actually i'm an an advocate of what you're doing you just caught me on a bad day but go ahead and finish no 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 but so 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 you get you get a des moines out of control you've got people that can mobilize i mean you can drive your tractors right up to the to the capitol steps if they're out of control 
And that happens. And so you hear people and they mobilize. And guess what? In my case, they're my neighbors. They're the people that put me in office. And you can come right to my house. You've got my address. You know right where I'm going to be. You know where I'm at in the Capitol. You know when I'm having a town hall meeting. And you get people eyeball to eyeball. And you get that kind of accountability. Government's never going to be perfect. And if we're not watching and maintaining and being vigilant, government's, government grows. That's what it does. And it grows in the name of love. But, but... You've got in, that accessibility when they're when they're right close to home, or in some other names that I could think of as well. Uh, we'll come back, have more of this conversation with Utah State Representative Ken Ivory in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. It's not about the next election. It's about the next generation. Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, talking about the Convention of States and what its momentum looks like post-election. Utah State Representative Ken Ivory is here with us. Uh, you're going around the country to advocate for this. Why? Well, I, it's the answer. It's in the handbook. You know, when I was called as a, in a church leadership position, I was a counselor to the leader and, and problems would come up and we wanted to help our people and I would come up with these creative solutions and he would just kind of sit back and let me take the line and run with it. And I'd keep coming up with these great creative solutions and finally he would say, uh, you know, brother Ivory, I got an, I got an idea. Why don't we check the handbook? And we have a handbook that was given to us by wise men who I believe God raised up. I mean, they talked over and over and over again about the miracles, you know, the great fog in the Battle of Long Island to, to cross the Delaware, all of the things that happened. Our founding was improbable and miraculous, and, and, and it took a lot of faith. And those people that met devised a system that never existed before in the history of the world and unleashed the greatest prosperity and creativity, the creative genius of our people, trusting them with liberty and property and self-governance and the opportunity to, to fail and learn how to move forward in those things created the greatest wealth and peace and prosperity the world's ever known. Well, we have that opportunity to move forward. And it's right there in the handbook that they gave us. Government exists to secure our rights. We divide government and limit government so that the people have the maximum amount of liberty to use their God-given genius to create, and that's where we get wealth and peace and prosperity. The more government expands, liberty contracts. So, so going back to that handbook and the formula they gave us was Article 5. You state legislators, Madison said introducing the Bill of Rights, you state legislatures are the sure guardians of the people's liberty. You can resist federal assumption better than any power on earth can do when he was introducing the Bill of Rights under Article 5. i got to tell you, Steve, I meet with state legislators all over the nation. These are people that are in office because of their kids, because of their businesses, because of their neighbors, because they have a neighbor that said, you know, I had this great idea for a business, but all the federal regulations scare me, and I'm afraid I'll go to jail if I do it, so I'm just not going to create. They have people that are creating, and they get out, and they're doing these wonderful things, and they get so much regulation, you know, 5,000 federal felonies, they can't even count them anymore. And like the folks up in, in Oregon, the Hammonds, that were just trying to tend their land with, with forest management using fire as a technique that's been done forever, they're in jail now for five years under anti-terrorism and death penalty acts for doing what everyone in the trial said was beneficial to the land. So, no, it's, it's, it's time that we have that re remedy right there in the handbook to re-clarify the divisions and limits of government so we unleash that liberty and we get that creative genius going again. Do you think what you're advocating is a bit of a paradox in that the argument could be made 
if he were the people capable of doing what this process set calls us and demands of us to do if we open this door we probably wouldn't have let it get to this point in the first place what do you say to that you know it's an interesting point but but Every generation has its battle, has its challenge. Because it, Todd's nodding his head yes, because I'm speaking his love language. So yes. So go ahead. It, it, every generation has its moment. It, the fact is, it is here now. I mean, next week, you know, we can throw the party for the $20 trillion debt. $20 trillion. You know, it takes 32,000 years to count to a trillion. I wish we weren't here, but we are. And so you see more and more people stepping up going, I know what that's going to do to my kids and my grandkids. And I met them in your state house today. I said, why are you doing it? A 23-year-old ran for office. He said, because all of my farmer neighbors are so sick of the EPA. They're so sick of federal bureaucrats coming in as judge, jury, executioner. I've got to step up and protect those people and do whatever I can. I see those people, Steve, all over the country that are stepping up on that. And so this is where we are. You know, it, it, it got to a point in America where for five generations they governed themselves. And then King George as a 20-something came in and said, i got to put you under my thumb. Mm-hmm. And they said, we're going to fight a battle for that. Well, fortunately, they gave us a system. We don't have to fight with muskets and pitchforks anymore. They gave us the constitutional tools to redeclare independence and to restore those balances, that division and, and limit on government. It's right there in the Constitution. Have you seen – how's your momentum been impacted by the election results? Have, have people had a tendency to say, yeah, I'm for this outside-the-box idea, but, oh, wait, you know, Team GOP won, so maybe we don't need to do this now because they'll handle everything for us in Washington from here. Yeah, there's some of that. I, I want to check back and say this is inside the box because it's right there in the handbook, right? So this inside-the-box idea. Yeah, the Constitution are, is outside the box to most Americans today. <laughs> to, to many, sadly, to many. But, yeah, there are some that say that you know hey hey i i just want to go back to to you know riding my four-wheeler and relaxing and the troops have come and trump's and, uh, got this and we're, we're trump drunk yeah right but that doesn't take away the thousands of judges in the federal judiciary it doesn't take away the armies literally armies, swat teams in the federal agencies that when i was in law school my administrative law teacher said if you work for a government agency your job is to grow the agency grow its money grow its power because that's how you grow the agency and they're teaching Law students grow the agency. Those people are still armed. Armed, I say. They're, they're still armed with an ideology to grow. And, and government's tendency is to grow. So as much as we may get a, a partial reprieve, now is absolutely the, the time to put in structural side rails, guardrails. We have the opportunity to do that. We have a president. So that way you're not one election away from losing fundamental liberties. Exactly. Let's give you an example. I mean, Hillary Clinton, when she was running in Utah, she said her policy was, was leave it in the ground, leave everything in the ground. You know, we're a public land state in Utah. That would have cost my state a hundred thousand jobs, eleven billion dollar annual hit to GDP. Hmm. And that was her policy. We're, we're, we're one election away from that coming right back and moving forward when we've got the opportunity to unleash that, that American genius. The recipe's simple. Secure people in their life, liberty, property. Let them govern themselves. That's where peace and prosperity comes from. Simple's not easy, though. Simple's not easy. Simple That's right. Simple's not always easy. State Representative Ken Ivory is here with us uh, from Utah. He is traveling around the country to advocate for the Convention of States. He's here in our backyard in Iowa. Uh, when we come back, I'll have just a couple of quick moments before the end of the hour. And um, I'm sure there's people in our audience that would like to know how they can get involved. 
And where are you guys at from a critical mass standpoint? How many states do you have locked in? Uh, how many, and how many states are truly locked in? I mean, how many states, yeah, we issued some kind of proclamation. How many states are legislatively prepared to act on this? How many states are required? And what is, and, and I'm going to give you a few minutes to think about this because we'll have a break. That's why I'm teasing this. What is the one part about this that you're worried about? Right? Everything has a fail-safe. Everything has a trade-off. Everything has a thermal exhaust port. Okay? So, so what's the thermal exhaust port? What, what is, if, if we build this, if we decide the Death Star is open for business, what's the part that you're like, that we, yeah, that's the part I'm worried about? We'll see if we can get an answer to that question here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. The front lines of the battle for liberty, the Steve Day Show. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Utah State Representative Ken Ivory is here with us. He is traveling the country on behalf of the Convention of States. So first and foremost, Ken, if people in our audience want to get involved, they want to know where their state stands on this, what would you recommend they do? Yeah, get involved. Go to cosaction.com, Convention of States, cosaction.com. You can also go to conventionofstates.com, get more information on the uh, on the information side of things. Where are you guys at? How many states are truly on board? What does it take for critical mass for this to actually go down? Yeah, now's absolutely the time. Eight states have already filed their, passed their resolution. So you've got eight states. You need to get to 34 to apply. We've got a, we've got a clear path this year to 23 more states. House and Senate, you've got 33 states that are completely under Republican control. Now with the two million people that are grassroots ag- advocates, Activists in the Convention of States growing at 30,000 a month. We're not, we're not stopping at 33 states. We've got people mobilizing to get to 30, 34 states, get to 30, 38 states that understand it's time to take our voice back. So the process, you've got 34 states that apply and say, we want to have a meeting of states. We want to get together and have a subcommittee that discusses how we get our voice back, how we reestablish the divisions and the limits on government so with liberty i can go create you get 34 states pass a resolution that sets the agenda you can't talk about things outside of that agenda convention of states is fiscal restraints reduce the size and scope of the federal government and consider term limits on federal officers so the convention gets together they discuss proposals and if they pass anything out then that has to be ratified by 38 states three-fourths of the states, if they do, then that becomes part of the Constitution and and provides meaningful checks, puts real teeth in the Tenth Amendment, so now the states are back in the game to be the watchdog, to be the external check that we're supposed to be to the federal government. Final question. Got about a minute or so here. What is your thermal exhaust port? I mean, I agree with you, and I've read the Cleon Scows and stuff, too. I agree our, our founding's a 5,000-year leap, so to speak. But, but even, uh, even that wisdom 
and the, and the aid of providence, you cannot concoct a system of government that can overcome human complacency. Just a, a willingness to voluntarily abrogate your legacy as a people as we are living in in our day and age. So there's your thermal exhaust port for a constitutional republic. What's the thermal exhaust port of this? What's the, what is the area where you have to make sure the blind side is covered if we go down this road? Yeah, very similar to what you said. I mean, there are people that don't want you to have liberty. There are people that are invested in being parasites to a centralized government. They're going to fight wildly to keep that host alive. And so it's we have to mobilize. They're going to try to intimidate your individual legislatures, your individual meetings. They're going to say you don't know parliamentary procedure, right? Right. I mean, you've seen the book Intimidation Game, Kim mm-hmm. Strassel. I mean, it's, it's all of that and more, right? They're going to come out and, and, and wage war everywhere they get. That's why we've got the 2 million people that have already stepped up, 30,000 people a month growing, cosaction.com, get on board, and we're going to take our voice back, and it's up to us. We're, we're the boss in this system. If we want to be treated like the boss, we have to act like the boss. Well said. Ken, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, guys. Matt Walsh of The Blaze will join us here to lead off hour number two. Stay tuned. You're listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 2 here tonight on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Don't forget, C-SPAN is going to be here on Thursday night, carrying our show live. Looking ahead to the dawn of the era of President Trump. So we'll have a special pre-inaugural show on Thursday night, which again, you can watch in its entirety on C-SPAN Live from 9 p.m. to midnight Eastern, coming up again on Thursday. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. We welcome back from the blaze. Matt Walsh is here. Matt, good to have you back, my friend. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. So, Matt, I want to spend some time with you tonight taking a look at the era that we are closing the curtain on and the era that we are about to begin. We spent some time on our show last night talking about Obama's legacy. What's your view of that? What What is his legacy? And and I know I don't have to tell you this, but we're trying to analyze it without being conservative agate prop, trying to look at it objectively, because I think his his legacy, I think, is complicated. On one hand, he decimated his party. On the other hand, by hook or by crook, he certainly moved the fulcrum of politics and culture decidedly decidedly to the left during his time. And I'm reminded of something Rick Santorum said to me several years ago. He said, hey, even if Obama in 2009 could have gone into the future and saw the way things like Obamacare would decimate his party, he still would have done it because of the amount of power and control that it would have handed him uh, and his uh, allies. So what's your view of that, Matt? Yeah, I think even looking at it objectively, it's hard for me to come up with, you know, try to give him credit and come up with something positive uh, that would be part of his legacy. That, that unfortunately, is difficult for me to do. And the thing that really comes to mind for me, even aside from what he, uh, you know, accomplished, quote-unquote, when it comes to 
liberal ideology, and he, and he did quite a bit there to uh, to force it more into the mainstream. Particularly when you look at you know, even things he's been doing recently with the you know the the, the transgender issue in the schools and the bathrooms. I mean, he, he's gone very 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 far, even further, I think, than a lot of than than, than even the most cynical conservative thought he would uh, eight years ago. I, I I don't know any conservative who thought eight years ago that this would be that that uh, that uh, Barack Obama would be forcing, for instance, uh, boys into the girls' restroom. At least I never heard that prediction from anybody. But even apart from that, I think one of his greatest, uh, and when I say great, I just mean in terms of impact, legacies, is uh, the racial division that he has, in my view, intentionally sowed and created. And he's created this atmosphere and this environment that is so foreign, it seems so foreign and alien to a lot of people in my generation in particular, where we grew up and, you know, it wasn't like there was racial harmony or anything like that. But mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, we had, for, for most of the, you know, 90s and into the 2000s, we had the closest thing to racial harmony that I think you've probably ever seen anywhere in the world uh, when you consider how many different types of people live in this country. And, uh, and then, you know, we, we, I used to hear about growing up, I hear about things like race riots. You know, I, I had no memory of anything like that. You hear about racial tension. I'm like, what does that look like? And now after eight years of Obama, we know what it looks like. And, uh, you know, race riots, racial violence, all these things. And then you look at what you look at one of the things that resulted in Trump, which is just kind of this white nationalism. Again, where, where did that come from? That didn't exist. White nationalism that didn't exist on the mainstream level. And that's happened as a response to Obama's divisiveness. So that, to me, is his uh, is his biggest legacy. It's, it's really a tragedy. You, I thought, I thought you made an interesting observation when you said, "Hey, if we would have gone back eight years ago, even the most ardent conservative critic would, would they have predicted we'd be arguing over who gets to use which restroom in the Obama years?" And I'm wondering how much of that is because one of the things we don't examine a lot in our culture today is is the real worldviews behind the debates we have and what the ultimate goals are. And and so if your real worldview begins with self, I mean in, in the progressive worldview, the self is the highest uh, is the highest being. It, it it demands actualization. It demands validation, just because it emotes. Therefore, I am. That that's sort of the it, it's the living embodiment of the of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is what a progressive worldview is. Therefore, did we learn a lesson from Obama that if this is what you truly believe, there really is no place then that you will not be told no. There, there really is no place then where your imagination uh, shouldn't wander to, because if the self is the highest achievement, then then who is anybody to tell yourself no? Yeah, and I, and I hope that we have learned a lesson there that at least conservatives have, or you know anyone who's not hard left liberal has learned that lesson about what you're talking about, what, what underlies liberalism, what is it? You know, taking everything, putting cl- classical liberalism and all that stuff aside, that, that's irrelevant to what liberalism is now, what leftism is now. It is, as you say, the worship of self. Um, I don't know if we've learned that lesson because I find that even now, after eight years of this, um, and after much longer than that of, of living amongst liberalism, even now, if I, if I, for instance, point out that liberalism is simply a secular form of Satanism, a lot of conservatives will react and say, hey, man, hey, dude, that's, that's, come on, that's crazy. That's a little too far. So have you not been paying attention? That's, Satanism is, by definition, the worship, worship of self, not the worship of Satan. 
Uh, it's the worship of self. That's that's what Satanism is. And so that's what liberalism is. It's a, it's a, it's a secular manifestation of Satanism, taking all the, the theology out of it and taking the, you know, the, 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 word, the, word, the, the actual physical act of worship out of it. Um, it is the worship of self. And to me and to you, it seems like that's obvious now. Uh, I don't know if the rest of the conservative movement has quite caught on to that. And that's why I think we were, uh, when I say we, I mean conservatives, were so slow and still are so slow to react and respond and fight back against this transgender thing. I mean, you still have a lot of conservatives who, who, la- who kind of shrug it off and say it doesn't matter that much, it's not a big deal, you know, why are we talking about this? Um, not understanding that the very definitions of reality are being undone around us, and it does matter. You know, it's, what is our culture going to be directed toward? Is it directed toward the worship of self, or is it directed toward something greater than that? And that really matters, I think. Um, and I don't know. I think a lot of conservatives still still don't get it, unfortunately. One of our many sayings on our show is, no man can rise above his own worldview. And I, I think your observation about um, conservative uh, blind spots that you just made, Matt, is correct. I think the reason for that, frankly, is that a lot of people think they're conservatives just because they think government's too big. Just because they want to be left alone, because they want to be able to take their gun they own wherever they want to go. And since a lot of conservatism is not defined by what it's actually trying to conserve, but opposition to what the, to the left's infringements on their own personal preferences or value system, there's, I think, a complete bastardization, mishmash, goulash of what conservative actually means. And the reality is, just as there's a lot of people claiming to be Christians that, that when you uh, quote the Bible to them, call you a legalist, there's a lot of people claiming to be a, a conservative just because they're opposed to a nanny state, but their idea of what they're trying to conserve is different i mean they're 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 telling you they they would their worldview is self too they just want to be able to do whatever it is that they want to be able to do and have nobody tell them no as well it's just their definition of the things they want to do it with is maybe different in terms of preference than what the left is is willing to permit yeah and and uh, i think that's why you know as time's gone on i have kind of found that i focus a lot less on the shrinking the size of government thing i mean that's still important don't get me wrong I don't think we start by harping on the size of government. And the thing is, everybody agrees that the, you know, everybody agrees that the government is too big in certain areas. You know, it, it, even liberals will say, oh, the government shouldn't be in this area or that area. You know, if, 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 a, if Texas passes a, an anti-abortion law, a pro-life law, all of a sudden the left cares about the size of government because you're invading my uterus now. Um, which is absurd, but that's what they say. So and we all are like, yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't want the government involved in this or that thing. But I think what liberals have figured out, they figured out a long time ago, is that let's not start with that. What matters is the culture. What matters is the heart. You know, let's get. We have to speak to people's hearts, and we have to get their priorities in line with ours. And once we do that, then the government will start to take shape in a way that reflects our priorities. And I think that's what we need to start doing as conservatives: is, is you know, focusing a little bit less on that. And talking about, you know, what what exact, what kind of culture do we think we should have? If it were up to us, we could snap our fingers. What would it look like? What would it be kind of oriented towards, directed towards? I think we have to be able to answer those questions. Matt Walsh is here with us from The Blaze. You can read his stuff over at The Blaze, which we would recommend, and we know a lot of you do. And we are turning the page on the Obama era. When we come back, we're going to now look ahead to the dawn of the era of Trump. 
And is Matt more or less optimistic about what that may mean than he was prior to November the 7th? We'll get the answer to that question in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. The Sleeping Giants Alarm Clock, Steve Dace. Back here on Matt with Matt Walsh from The Blaze here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. So, Matt, let's, let's look ahead. In, uh, in the next three days, we're going to be um, inaugurating a new president, Donald Trump. Neither one of, you, neither one of us were necessarily big fans, but I'm, I'm curious to know, based on what has transpired since his election, the way that he has handled his business, the transition team, the appointments that he has made, are you more or less optimistic about what this change in power is going to mean than you were prior to the election? I'll say that nothing Trump has, as far as his own personal conduct and the things that he said and just his general demeanor and, and all his, his kind of act, as far as that goes, that has not inspired any additional confidence in me at all. My, my confidence and optimism there remains at zero. Um, he, he's not going to, he's still the guy, he, he's the guy he was back when I opposed him. That, and that, that's not going to change. He's 70 years old and it's not going to change. And it especially won't. It's not going to change for the better once he's inherited uh, enormous power. It just it doesn't work that way with people. However, um, so we have that. You know, that's still there. But yeah, a lot of the appointments that he's made, I, I like. Um, there's only been a few that I've, you know, that I feel really hesitant about. But for the most part, I like the appointments. Uh, I continue to like Mike Pence. You know, as, as vice president. Um, so my hope and optimism for the future is that Trump will realize, to some extent, his limitations, and also really have not a lot of interest in in a lot of these different areas where he's appointed people to, to oversee. And he'll just kind of let them handle things, and uh, he'll kind of take a back seat to that, and he'll let the people around him kind of guide the ship. So if he does, it, it, because he has put a lot of good people around him. And so if he lets them guide the ship, then I think we'll, we'll be in pretty good shape. Um, however, if he's an egomaniac and he says, I have to control everything and just decides all of a sudden when he's sitting there in the Oval Office and he's got the big desk and he's got the nice chair and he, and he says, to himself, oh, actually, I can do all of it. Um, then I think, you know, that could be that could be a big problem. But it remains to be seen. I, you know, I don't know. It, it, it's pretty obvious to me that Trump. He likes the tension. He likes being out, you know, doing rallies and all that kind of stuff. But behind the scenes, does he delegate? Does he allow the people who know what they're doing to do what he appointed them to do? I don't. I don't really know the answer to that question, and I'm hoping that the answer is yes. How much? I think it's clear because Americans wanted to try and, and move past the racial um, animosity of the past, uh, America's stained legacy where race is concerned, that Amer- a lot of Americans were hoping Obama's election, whether they voted for him or not, would move us past this era once and for all. And so I, I do think that he was given perhaps more rope because of that aspect than just your average everyday um, leftist president would have been given. I also think that that Trump's entertainment factor 
likewise gives him a base that seems impervious to any critical analysis as well. Uh, his willingness to just disembowel uh, the leftist tropes, I think, creates a level of loyalty as well that I think will give him some rope, uh, you know, it, that maybe somebody, another Republican would not have received. But sooner or later, don't you think, Matt, that for all the antics and all the, the one-liners and all the funny press conferences, that sooner or later he's going to rise and fall on actual results? I think so. I, um, with a caveat. I mean, the caveat is that, just like we saw with Obama, uh, and both sides have this, you know, you're always going to have the loyalists, uh, the people that are, that are just loyal to whoever's heading up their party, quote-unquote. And so whatever that person does, they're going to support so there's a there's definitely a faction of quote unquote conservatism in this country. I'm not sure exactly how large, but they will go whatever Trump. It doesn't matter what Trump does; they will go along with it. We know that's the case. Um, however, I think there's also a faction, probably a larger faction than you have in liberalism, of people who yeah they're given the benefit of the doubt. They may they, they and they may still be amused by Trump, and so as you said, they're getting a lot of credit for that. But uh, eventually, the act is going to wear thin, and, and for those, for a lot of people, it, it's not going to matter as much anymore. It's like, yeah, we've seen it, we get it, um, and so, yeah, what what are you actually going to do? Because it's, it's right. It, there's still a novelty right now. I mean, yes, yeah, like everyone has said, we we we've never seen anyone like Trump before on the political scene. Uh, we've never had a president like him, so he's going to be able to ride that wave for a while. That it's also novel, but it won't remain novel forever. People. You know, people get used. We we adapt to things really quickly as human beings, mm-hmm. and so I think pretty quickly it's going to be like, oh, okay, well, we have Donald Trump as president. That's normal. It's just that's what it is now. And so now it's a matter of, are you actually going to do the job? Um, so we'll see. You and I are both big sports fans, and I used to work in the sports media. And one of the things I found is, if the coach had a reserved demeanor, and the team was winning, people thought. Wow, I mean, the calm he brings, the poise, the composure he has, and it's clear that that the team feeds off of that, and that's why they're clutch and in, in, in pressure situations. But if the team is not winning, people look at that coach. He's flaccid. He's boring. No wonder the team has no fire. Uh, I mean, the coach is flat, so the players feed off of that, or vice versa, right? If the, if the coach is crazy and the players come out and they and they win, yeah, he fires them up. But if he's crazy and they lose, he's like, well, no wonder these guys don't have any poise. The coach is over there going nuts. I think the same thing will be true of Trump. People are going to love these antics, and other politicians will seek to emulate them if he makes the trains run on time. If he does not, then people are going to view these things to be a distraction and a reason why he can't get the job done. Yeah, and the truth and the truth will be will be somewhere in the middle, of course. Um, and, and, and I do think that to some extent, the antics that we're talking about, it, it, it's, it is going to inter- interfere to some extent with his ability to, to govern. But I always go back to... Look, we know we know that he's an egomaniac. It, it doesn't. I mean, there's no reason to try to deny that. Um, but I'm really maybe that will work to our advantage because he's very egotistical. He cares what people think about him. He cares about winning, and so maybe he'll realize that hey, I, and I care about the image. I want people to think good things about me, and so maybe he'll realize that well, I can't really do a lot of this stuff. I've got good people around me. I'll let them do it. Um, and, you know, maybe he won't make that decision out of love of country or selflessness, but simply out of egoism. And if whatever the, you know, whatever, if that's the road he goes, whatever propels him towards it, I don't care. But that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping. 
Matt Walsh from the Blaze, uh, you're right. I, I think you just count on the fact he's a narcissistic megalomaniac and then concoct a strategy to take advantage of those tendencies rather than denying them. I think that's very smart. Thank you, Matt. We'll do this again next week, man. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Take care. That's Matt Walsh from the Blaze. I want to get some reaction from you guys to what Matt just said uh, when we come back here in a few minutes, talking about both Obama's legacy and how still many people calling themselves conservatives aren't really willing to admit with the ultimate end game of this sort of leftist progressive marxist statist worldview really is that that we that really these are existential debates uh, this is a desire to to completely rewire civilization and if your idea of conservatism is well, I don't want to report to a higher authority than myself either. I just want to own guns while I'm not while I'm not accountable to anything other than myself. I want lower taxes and more guns. You're not going to see those things because your worldview won't permit it. We'll have that conversation here in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. Hey there, Roman class. Meet your worst nightmare. I'm having these dreams, but I'm scared. Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Let's get some reaction to the conversation we just had with Matt Walsh from The Blaze. Two things I want you guys to follow up on. Uh, well, let's start with, uh, with Matt's observation of why still so many conservatives are blinded to the existential nature of the cultural debate that is required in uh, to truly stand up to what men like Barack Obama have uh, have planned for America, what their ideas are. I don't mean that to be like some sinister cabal, but these are people that just have dramatically different values and existential ideals of what kind of country we ought to be, Todd. I don't know if it's blind, but they don't actually believe the things that they say they believe in. Uh, to get elected. And so they say things like, this is uh, Obama's failed presidency. No, this is not Jimmy Carter's presidency. This is in position to be one of the most consequential uh, presidencies within the last hundred years. He, no matter how many seats he's lost in Congress, uh, his, his base is as ginned up as ever. Yes, they lost this election, but that has a lot more to do uh, with things than Barack Obama, and his positives show that. People are fooling themselves if they call this a failed presidency. This president has taken and taken and taken and remained popular. That has set the stage for an immediate pushback from the left that we know this Congress is not capable of defeating. And all our chips are now on Donald Trump. That, I, that gives me that does not give me comfort at all. Yeah, it, it again kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the show, the open of the show. It's just thinking is hard 
I mean, people don't want to think. And how do you get people to uh, actually think through what they say they do? And I, I don't know why the, the cause of that is, why they, I mean, it's other than human nature. We just like being lied to. But I think for a lot of people, they just never had it instilled in them uh, from the very, very beginning of why they describe themselves as conservative or why they believe what they believe as a Republican or why they like the Republican Party platform, what have you. People never really had that question, I think, answered to them. And so they get caught up in this culture and this tribalistic culture of dueling narratives, and they just like it because it's entertaining. And I think at the back of, in the back of their minds, whether or not they actually think about this or not, but I think instinctively at the back of their minds, if they, under, if, if they uh, told themselves, if they really believed and really got to know what they say they believed, this dueling narrative would not continue, and where is their entertainment going to be for the rest of their, their life? Times. I think that's part of, of what we're seeing here. Just an un, total unwillingness to actually change anything because it's just too dang entertaining. And this is how I grew up. And so this is how I identify myself. Let's switch gears, talk about the conversation we had looking, for, looking forward to or looking ahead. Maybe we're not looking forward to the new era that's going to start on Friday. And you heard Matt say, let's just admit that the new president's a narcissistic megalomaniac. And instead of trying to deny that, see if we could actually use those tendencies to our advantage as conservatives. Your thoughts on that, Todd? Use those tendencies. Uh, there's nothing to be used. What we are betting on is, at best, a game of Russian roulette. And we're hoping there's only Can you one... Pick a different kind of roulette? There's only one. Well, <laughs> yes. That's very, very loaded. I think, we've, I think we're speaking enough Russian as I, of late. I mean that in the pre-Putin Putin obsession sense of the term. But we're hoping that there's only one bullet in the chamber and not five. So you want to play Barney Fife roulette. That's what you want to play. Yeah, and this is... I, I think that's... True, but how can you? I I, I know um, you know what God intended for evil, uh, or what man intended for evil, God used for good, and those those things can be done. But that's a cosmic conversation as far as what we can affect um, as as conservatives, as um, you know, politicos or what have you, uh, with our various platforms and areas of power that can actually use those uh, harmful and negative and really evil tendencies within Donald Trump's character. I I don't think I don't I don't trust us enough to be able to wield us if we even had that that power so i i get the sentiment and yes there are things i i do agree that we should just accept that he's a narcissistic megalomaniac because um, that will just set our baseline of expectations very low which is a very good thing but as far as being able to use those i just don't think that's possible and let's be the closer we get to inauguration day go from the joy the many joys of the last several months of watching progressivism meltdown to sitting there on friday and just having that rush of never trump rush over you like oh dear god what is happening here this is real it's really happening that's where i'm at not wishing hillary was there instead but that this is this is a rough bet it's weird for me i, I mean i am I, I am totally fine with it even though my expectations are basement dwelling i mean i got cannibalistic humanoid humanoid underground dwelling expectations and yet i strangely seem at peace with all of that i don't know maybe it's maybe my total depravity theology is giving me peace you're listening to Steve Dace. The Power of Principles, Steve Dace.
All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. So earlier today, I, I think it's something we should address, even though I think we should address it in a way where our opinions are um, reserved, because we don't know the facts, Okay. Earlier today, there was a press conference um, that was this conference press conference. I know I watched it. Lasted for about two hours. Um, feminist attorney Gloria Allred was the attorney of record, as she was for so many of these kinds of cases, including Paula Jones originally. Uh, a woman named Summer Zevros. Now, I think there was some confusion when this story first broke today that this was the woman who alleged the sexual assault against Trump when she was underage. That's not who this is. Uh, that woman, remember, she was going to have a press conference with Gloria Allred uh, during the election, and then right before the press conference was to go live, backed out and said she didn't want to go through with it. This is a different case. Summer Zevros is a former contestant on The Apprentice. Uh, she did show up for the presser today, uh, claiming that uh, that Trump used his perch as uh, the executive producer and the star of the show to proposition her, and then uh, when she didn't return his advances to become more forceful uh, in using his power uh, to come after her, uh, and that the, the impetus for why she is f- filing her lawsuit today, she's actually not filing a sexual harassment or an assault lawsuit. She's actually filing a defamation lawsuit. Which is, is, when I use the word clever, I don't mean to make it sound complimentary as, as much as I'm just, a, I'm, it's an observation. I got, I'm trying to be very careful about how we assess this, okay? Uh, it's an observation of the tactic, not a, not a validation of the tactic. I'm not, I don't know whether it, she's telling the truth or not. But the, the, the issue going after him in terms of defamation, because the, the argument is, She's coming forward now because Trump used his perch as a presidential candidate to denigrate women like her and their original charges and say they weren't true and they're a bunch of bimbos and liars. That would seem to me um, to be something that maybe has a lower threshold uh, of of pushback than trying to prove the exact circumstances of her alleged propositioning. You guys see what I'm trying to get at here? exactly what I thought, too. Okay, so this is is because that would seem to be an easier case to prove in court. Hey, that he called me a lying bimbo, and here's what that... He's he's much more powerful than me, and look what that did to me and and my my person than it would be trying to prove whatever it was that allegedly went on between the two of them one-on-one, if anything ever did, or even if they ever were one-on-one, because, of course, it'll be his word against hers. So... This is, of course, become a major news story today. And the amount of press that showed up for this thing was, I know, I watched it, was voluminous. Gloria Allred, of course, is no stranger to these cases. Uh, she was Paula Jones's attorney. And then she also was a Hillary Clinton donor. I don't know how you rectify those things, but my name's not Gloria Allred, so I don't have to. I'm only putting these things out there, again, so that our audience has the facts. I know it will be impossible to avoid, but if at all costs, I'd like to see how many of us can um, can resist the temptation to play to type, where we just play out what happened in the 1990s 
and we just re- and we just flip the script. The parting on the left is now the parting on the right, so to speak. So, your thoughts on this? Do you guys? To me, I think the only thing we can really analyze is the political ramifications of it. And right now, I don't think there will be any. Now, if you have a judge who doesn't summarily dismiss this, you have a judge that says, I think there's prima facie evidence here, We're gonna, she's going to get her day in court, then I do think there becomes some kind of a political impact, how overwhelming or how minimal, we don't know. If you get into a situation where several of women come forward, then the, the issue that I think Trump's going to have, that, that, Bill, that, that Bill Clinton faced... But but Bill Clinton's narcissism manifests itself differently than Trump, and we didn't he didn't have Twitter to instantly sound off, right? So maybe he could not have handled he wouldn't have handled this much better. Maybe that's the reason that uh, Bill Clinton and Trump were such good friends until this election. But you do wonder whether someone's going to be able to say to Trump, "Say nothing about this," because the, this is a trap. It's a trap. The more you talk about this publicly. The more, the more you castigate these women as liars, the more you actually are making the case that you're defaming them for them. Your thoughts, Todd? It's going to take more than more women coming out. It's going to take more than him saying or not saying anything. Listen, this is part of the reason why I was never Trump, this kind of stuff piling up. I mean, there there is some smoke there. The guy is a moral reprobate on some level, but he still won the election while all this kind of stuff was going on, and he got more votes than squeaky clean Mitt Romney. The only way that this gains any level of traction is if there is a smoking gun. And I, this is akin to uh, Ray Rice videos. How many of you guys have, have you know been suspended for getting involved in some sort of domestic disturbance uh, before? But it was a, a slap on the wrist because there wasn't video. These videos caused a firestorm. If she actually has some degree of proof that we haven't seen before, then we'll talk. But until then, we know this ball game. And it ends up, it ends up with Trump clean on the other side, does it not? Yeah, it, you, you're absolutely right. We've seen this. Uh, we've seen this game before. We've seen this movie before. We know how it uh, comes out. And I completely agree with the take that unless there is a smoking gun, nothing will come of this. Now, going back to what Steve uh, analyzed to begin this segment, that this is a defamation case, not a sexual assault case. I don't want to get off into the weeds. One, because I'm not a lawyer, and two, getting off into the weeds when you're not an expert in something tends to make for bad radio but what i've read so far from this is that if you do if you're filing a defamation case if there was slander or libel you actually have to prove something else before you can get to proving that there was something lied about uh, involving you so the 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 what i'm trying to say is that you'd think you'd have if you're going to win this defamation case you'd, you'd think you'd also have to prove sexual assault as well There's one more point about this I want to make, and we'll do so when we come back here in just a moment. us there's only the future of the country at stake you're listening to steve dace 
All right, one more thing on this story. And again, I I know I'm going to give advice here that's likely not to be taken, but I want to be able to say in advance when it blows up in people's faces that I tried. Don't waste any political capital on this. Uh, The issues in a court of law, let it be handled there. I don't think there's an, I don't think this rises to the level of imposing on Trump's ability to govern or anything, at least not yet. Now, if a court, if there's a court of law that initially finds that it does, well, then we may have to have a different conversation. But until that takes place, I would not be in a hurry to defend the honor of Donald, of Donald Trump against such charges. Can I just, can we keep it real for a moment tonight? Can we do that? Step on the gas, man. If this turned out to be true, would anybody be shocked? That's what I'm saying. And if she turned out to be a gold-digging opportunist, would anybody be shocked? No and no. Okay? I mean, that's what you get when... um, It's the same thing the left went through with Bill Clinton. When one of the opening salvos of meeting this individual on a national basis for the first time as a candidate is you become familiar with the fact somebody actually does spell the name Jennifer with a G... The precedent has been set. You can't just summarily dismiss any future allegations that go along with this. Not to mention, do you know that right now every every leftist media outlet in the country is pouring through every notable conservative's Twitter feed and Facebook posts and doing a LexisNexis search on whatever anything's been said about Kathleen Willey or Juanita Broderick in the past in the hopes of them of then using that against us later on if you want to summarily dismiss Summers Evros. And you'll look like a total clown. And we should know this because we've done this to them many times. Let me ask you a side question. Does something like this and whatever trouble it could potentially cause for cover, does this make it all the more likely that Trump does something like nominate a Supreme Court justice who makes Scalia look like a liberal just so that if this goes bad... The, the people on the right just, yeah, but he's our guy. I, I, I don't need to know about that because he's doing the things I want him to do. I don't know the answer to that. I don't think anybody truly does. And we won't know um, until until we see how he responds and we see how he governs. So what you're saying here, Steve, is that we're you're encouraging us to have patience and discernment. And maybe even a little restraint. I know. Those are things that adults do. That's yes. not fun. No, it's not fun. I I know it would shock exactly nobody that a billionaire on his third wife, and they get younger every time, may have attempted at one point in time to use a position of power to proposition a woman. Said no one. It also wouldn't shock us if this woman just made the whole thing up, given given Gloria Allred's past as well. Just let it play itself out. Because this won't be everybody's first rodeo the next four years. We should get plenty of practice at this. So just let it play itself out, be an adult, let the evidence speak for itself, and move on. You're listening to Steve Dace. to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign. 
king in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with our three of the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. And don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Still to come, are you ready for some good news? Because I was reading something recently that said, yes, there actually was plenty of good news in the just concluded year that everybody lamented as the worst ever. And we'll learn what some of that good news was coming up here momentarily. But first, it's time for three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. It is three questions when our producer, Aaron, each night is allowed permission, at least for the next few minutes, to go off-road a little bit. He gets to ask us three questions about any three things. There is nothing whatsoever off-limits, but he must be willing to answer the same questions himself. So, Aaron, as long as you will agree to that one stipulation, you may continue. Sure thing. Uh, Question one. If you had to work a non-appointed or non-elected position in government, what would it be? A non-appointed position or non-elected position? Yep, not in neither of those two. Uh, first of all, how do you get a non-appointed position in government without getting elected? Do you know? Uh, well, usually there's... I you mean, mean having can, somebody hire you? Yeah. Um, but that would be an appointment, wouldn't it? Uh, that's not in the typical sense. When, when you, okay, define a job you apply for? So yeah, define appointment. For. Does this mean I need to have a confirmation? Uh, yes, no confirmation. Okay, so a job that doesn't require a confirmation? Correct, yeah. All right, chief of staff. One of the four most powerful jobs in government uh, in the executive branch, other than the presidency itself. The only one that doesn't require a congressional, the only one of those four that does not require a congressional confirmation. You are essentially the gatekeeper for what uh, and who and when gets access to the West Wing and the inner sanctum of the most powerful office in the land. So give me that one, Todd. I get the feeling Aaron was going more for, like, Park Ranger or something like that. Is that where well, you that's, were? Yeah, that's my fault, though, because trust Steve yeah, to find the loophole in every know, question. I, yeah, none of that stuff interests me. I wouldn't do – unless I was going to wield real power. I have no incentive to move there, live there, be a part of it. Unless you're going to give me real power and those sorts of jobs don't have any, and there's really none of them I could think of that I would do uh, that, that probably wouldn't be unconstitutional for fun – um, so, no. Uh, it, I, it, it would have to be a position that has actual power. I would like to be as nuanced and knowledgeable as some of the tour guides at some of the um, uh, museums in Washington, D.C. I mean, those folks, I don't know if they just live and breathe and, and that content during the time they're there and they're in and out and the high turn. I don't know, but some of them are just impressive in the extreme, whether they're young or old. I mean, they, they, it's like you, when you go to, before you go to Disneyland, you hear that everything is clean, everything. You, when my, my experience, I went there, wow. It was even 
it exceeded my expectations in terms of how on the ball they are. That's how I view my experience in D.C. when I've gone to some of the monuments, the archives, things like that. The tour guides are fantastic. So I think that'd be fun to do for a year or so. That is a, that is a, a solid answer. I, I went down to Kennedy Space Center, and those those some of the tour guides tour guides down there are uh, just exactly what you were um, what you were describing. Uh, basically, the only thing that you have to apply for in government um, that is that is not appointed besides chief of staff, not appointed, not elected, is basically a bureaucratic position. So I reject the premise of this question. That's why I gave you the answer. The, the, those bureaucratic positions have no power. Yeah. Well, they they have st- they do have power. Not worthy of me having to suffer through living in Washington, D.C. kind of power. Look at you channeling your Palpatine. Unlimited power! Yes. Yeah, and and since it cost $1 million, Austin Powers, to freaking park there, yeah, I'm not going there without real power. Otherwise, what's the point? Give me real power, and, and then we'll talk. Cool. Uh, question two. If football season or Christmas is the part of the year you look forward to the most... Which part of the year is opposite, and what do you do to fill the time during those days? That's a good question. Um, I, I would say, for me, that um, that lull probably is late April to early June, uh, because... We're not yet where the big summer blockbuster popcorn movies typically. Well, they they now come out like around early May, so that time period's not as long as it used to be. Um, the college sports season is over. Um, we're not in the playoffs. Well, we kind of are in the playoffs. So you know, now I think about it. There's really no time of year that I that I really dislike. There's just some I like more than others. So you know, now that I think about it, you know. Um. You know what? Here, I'll give you one. February, after the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. until we get to March Madness, because I really, you're in the dog days of the other sports seasons. The weather is terrible. Yes. You don't feel like you can get out at all. Uh, desolation, cabin fever begins to set in, right? And, um, you're, and, and you're just counting down the days until the calendar says March. And for me, spring, you know, Selection Sunday has always been kind of the unofficial start of spring for me. So I would say from the end of the Super Bowl till Selection Sunday in college basketball or around the beginning of March Madness might be, even though I, there's still some good stuff going on, my kids have birthdays during that time, you know. But if you had made me pick one time of year I like less than the others, that would be it. Yeah, that that end of winter when you're ready for the snowstorms to be done. And I, I like snow. I like winter. I go skiing. But you're, you're ready to move on to the, the spring sports that your kids play in and go out and sit in your lawn chair, and then it dumps another couple inches of snow on you. That's it. But I've, I've spiritually actually tried to not have those kind of laments anymore mm-hmm. because I mean, and I, life is such a gift and I exactly. caught myself over time you know I can't wait till this day I, is I, over that, that's a that's, that's a bad that, habit to get into that's why I didn't have an immediate answer and that's why even the answer that I did give you know my kids still have birthday parties you know I have a pretty good life when you stop and think about Don't it. Don't wish it away. I mean, yeah, most of the issues that I have during certain times of the year are are absolute whiny first world problems that are in no posi- that I'm I'm really in no position given how blessed I am in total to completely cry and whine about. So that's my answer. 
just Jesus juke the entire show right here. Uh, no, um, if if I did have something to complain about, it would be late February because I get a year older. But then again, again, life is a gift, so you you guys are both right. Premise of their question is rejected again. Uh, you're you're twenty three. You're worried about getting older. Yeah, even now, I just I'm like I, you know, the end is near. Okay, like, Peter. You Pan. Just you just took a week long hodge <laughs> to Harry Potter world. Please don't come back here and tell me I'm concerned I'm getting older. That's why he wants to be like eight again, cracking open the book for the first time. Yes, come on now. There you go. Uh, Question three. Best song of the 90s. Whoa. Whoa. Wow. I'm sorry, that wasn't a question. Best song of the 90s? (laughs) You you phrased it in the form of a question? Yes. I'm going to have to really think about that. It's pretty easy for me. What what is it for you? Because it's a lot. There's a lot of sucky songs in the '90s. The '90s was a terrible deck, in my opinion. I know there was Nirvana, Nirvana and stuff, and Foo Fighters kind of got started there. Um, but otherwise, it was just a sucky decade. Uh, but I, I will completely go, disagree with you. By the way, uh, we'll go with a Foo Fighters song, "Everlong." That's a great song. Um, that's a tough question, man. I could think of two or three U two songs. I could think of a lot of songs. How about I will? Uh, how about this? Because it's immediately what popped into my mind, so I'm going to roll with it. I'm, even though if, I, if you gave me more time, I might come up with something I thought was a better song. I'm going to go "Jeremy" by Pearl Jam, Todd. Since that's the first song that popped into my mind when you asked me the question, I'm going with that. You, all the same album, you two. Uh, Pearl Jam, like I could uh, pick th- Guns N' Roses there's, there's, popped into my head. There are three great songs alone on alone on Act Tongue Baby, for example. Okay, that you could pick. But uh, since the since it, the first song that came into my mind when you asked me was Jeremy by Pearl Jam, that's going to be my answer. And see that also when I think '90s music, I'm in the early '90s. I couldn't even frame my frame of reference for like the turn of the century into the 2000s. I, aren't, aren't we in the middle of like? boy bands and Britney Spears by that time, so... Yeah, I was going to say, if any of you said anything about Britney Spears... You're not going to drop gonna... an I Want It That Way, are you? <laughs> Which I believe was the top-selling single of the 90s, was it not? Lord have mercy. <laughs> More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Time to fight is now, always, the Steve Day Show. Now for something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. You see, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We gotta get some buzz going. This is the Nightly Buzz. We go back, take a look at some of the headlines we missed from earlier in the show, because not even in three hours can we cover everything worthy of covering. And this is what's trending on social media at your water cooler, as reported via the headlines from our producer, Aaron. We've got those hot takes, and I know the hot takes are going to roll in after the question that you asked. And in the future, if you're going to ask a question like that, Mm -hmm. make that number one. 
Don't make it number three where we know we're up against a hard break and we have to come up with something right away. So make it easier for you. Well, give us more time on something that re- you, you asked me. You asked us a to to compile one needle in a haystack from an entire decade of music. That's see, if, not something we had readily available. See, if it wasn't just so much fun to put you all on the spot, I would probably have made it. You know, question number one. But duly noted. Now, will... now if I was now if you gave me time, mm-hmm. would Pearl Jam's Jeremy be like on my top ten list of songs from the nineties? Yeah. And I might even, if I had more time to come up with a list, it still might even be number one. But like, as soon as we went to break, you know what popped into my head? Rooster by Alice in Chains, which is just an incredible song, right? So that would, already I'm rethinking my answer. So in the future, when you, when you ask, hey, I want you to give me one potential answer from an entire decade of data. Can we make that number one? I think that's a reasonable request, Todd, don't you think? Well, I know I certainly needed more time. But and not the bumper music starts in 45 seconds. Go. <laughs> okay. Thank you. All right. Duly noted. Uh, question or uh, Story number one for the nightly buzz. A protest against Donald Trump has dissolved its partnership with a pro-life group following online backlash. The organizer, uh, organizers of the Women's March on Washington made it clear Monday that pro-life groups have no place in the demonstration planned for January 20th. The anti-choice organization in question is not a partner of the march, they said in a statement made available to the Washington Examiner. They went on to say, we apologize for this error. The protest is pro-choice, and that has been our stance from day one. We want to assure all of our partners, as well as our participants, that we are pro-choice as clearly stated in our unity principles. Well, The irony of this, Todd, that in order to join the Women's March, you have to be willing to kill baby women. Of course, the irony here is palpable. And and what I like about what our side, you know, we often talk about tactical errors our side makes. Because we make a lot. We make, we make a lot of tactical errors. But the one thing we are, one of the things, well, not the one thing. There's several things we are starting to do right. And one of them is questioning the premise of, of titles where, where identity politics are involved. Not allowing the left to just immediately assume this mantle, right? And so what you had was you had Kelsey Harkness at the Heritage Foundation and, and several women on our side. The reason this story became a story is because we had a bunch of, we had set, not a bunch, but you had enough uh, pro-life women said, yeah, we'd like to come and be a part of this, that this begged the question. This forced them to then come out and show bear, show the fa- bear the fangs, show their true colors, and show that this is really just astroturf from the left. It's the same piece of, it's the same people that would protest any Republican nominee, no matter who it was, whether it was somebody who's as boorish as Donald Trump or, or as complacent or as compliant with the left as John McCain. It's the same scam and the same talking points all over again. And so props to our side for begging this question and forcing them to reveal themselves. And after the election, there was some question about what the left would, would do. This is a microcosm of what they will do. They, they aren't going to try to grow their brand, massage their brand, tweak their brand. They, as they have been, but they are going to dial it all the way up to 11 now, they are going to force feed us their brand you're with us or you're dead to us and they'll march on 
You vote for us or you're stupid. Uh, Second story, dating apps are fueling rampant rates of sexual promiscuity, according to a leading Brisbane sexual health doctor who quite frequently, he says, treats patients who have sex up to with up to 10 people a day. Dr. Wendell Rosevere, a longtime sexual health campaigner, told news.com.au, which is an Australian website, people have seized on Internet dating and dating apps such as Tinder and Grindr to have frequent, often anonymous encounters. He said the behavior is born, ironically, from increasing social isolation. Far from the obvious assumption that people having sex with multiple partners each day were sex workers, Dr. Rosevere said that most were regular men and women who are isolated at home and use the Internet to arrange multiple sexual encounters to fill the void of intimacy that their lack of social interactions has created. I'm shocked at the second part of this story because that diagnosis is exactly correct. That, that, that diagnosis is exactly correct. Is that people, just as we often conflate equality with sameness, something we've talked about on this show quite a bit, and we'll probably have to keep talking about into perpetuity, given the culture we're in. We have, we have conflated sexual activity with intimacy. Now, it used to be they were one in the same, right? Can you be more intimate with a person than disrobed? Can you be more vulnerable with another human being than when you're naked? But that's... that's not true in the day and age in which we live anymore. And I don't think Tinder and I don't even know what Grindr is. I know I've heard of Tinder because I've heard of athletes get in trouble on it. What is Grindr? Uh, From what I've heard in the past. Let me guess. Let me guess. That's the rainbow jihad. How did I know? Okay. I, 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 they had you at Grindr. Moving on. Yes. Moving on. But the, 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 the point being is that, when you, you know, one of the things Paul writes in Romans 1 is that, is that um, we worship the created rather than the creator. In the created order, what is the highest being in the created order? We are. We are the highest being of the created order. Peter even, St. Peter even says we're higher than the angels. We are the highest beings of the created order. So therefore, when we take worshiping the created over the creator to its fullest conclusion, Todd, who are we ultimately worshiping? Ourselves. Ourselves. And, and so when there is nothing higher than self, there is, there's, there's few ways where you can more intimately, intimately express yourself with another human being than sexually. But if the point of that intimacy is sexual connection in and of itself... And that doesn't mean there's not a pleasurable aspect of sexuality, as I've explained to the high school kids I teach on the side. My, Amy and I have explained to our own teenage daughter. There's aspects of the of the human anatomy that exist only for titilla- only for titillation and pleasure. They have they serve no other function than that. So clearly, the creator intended for this to be a pleasurable activity. But if the pleasure is the ultimate means in and of itself. And so, therefore, a relationship that creates that intimacy factor in the first place is not a requirement. And, I'm, and now I'm just engaging in this animalistically on a, on a wide swath. Well, well now, I am, now I am acting as if I'm an animal, but I'm not because I have something an animal doesn't have, and that's a soul. 
And that's why those people, that's why, and they continue to act out this way because they think the next orgasm, the next high, the next pleasure will then give me the meaning, Todd, that I'm looking for. And instead, it just continues the downward cycle. And actually, the perversity we're talking about, if you translate this story into our politics, it's the exact same problem. We don't have real intimacy with people on the other side of the aisle, people that are a little different from us. Uh, and so we go out and we have the porn version of politics, basically. It's well said. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. How about we try that whole life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness thing again? Hmm. This is Steve Dace. So was 2016 truly the worst year ever? As so many lamented on social media. Minnie Belts is here with us from World Magazine, and she wrote a piece recently that, uh, that, that sort of contradicts this notion that nothing good came from 2016, and we want to welcome her to the Steve Day Show. Mindy, how are you? I'm great, Steve. Thanks for having me. So, Mindy, how did you manage to find good news in this swirling <laughs> cesspool of the worst year of all time known as 2016? <laughs> I had to work at it a lot. Um, no, I mean, I like... You know, most Americans, I think, came to the end of this year with a sense of sort of exhaustion. Um, We had been pulled through this grueling political campaign that seesawed us back and forth between all kinds of sortedness on both the right and the left from various times. And, and, you know, so we were all a little bit um, um, uh, leveled, I'll say, by that. And, And, you know, coming upon this story that got virtually no attention of this amazing study involving 11,000 African subjects in Guinea. And the story in the study just overwhelmingly um, produced fantastic results on eradicating the Ebola uh, uh, virus. And if you remember, we had a year ago, you know, and two years ago, just um, incredible scourge of Ebola in Africa. And so here we are on the threshold of, of um, curing, in effect, something that um, has, has just plagued Africa and potentially the United States because we saw the first cases here during that epidemic. So that started me on this course of sort of looking for good news and, um, and, and, and going in that direction, which was very um, heartening to me. One of the things you mentioned before we get into some of this good news, one of the things you mentioned in your piece, which shouldn't be surprised given that you work at World Magazine, how much of the lament and, you know, as somebody who works and covers politics and cultural issues for a living and is sort of at the front lines of this, I would agree that 20, I've had better years in this business than 2016. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, being in this business is not everything I do. It's not all that I am. And I'm wondering how much of this negativity is a worldview issue? How much of it is if my worldview says that what happens in the social arena, in the political arena, ultimately determines um, the validity of my of my viewpoint, of my values. That there's nothing transcendent I'm attached to, other than whatever approval or disapproval my countrymen have for my beliefs at this moment. I'm I'm probably going to take this a little bit more personally than people who might have a a more long term or eternal perspective, right? 
Right. I think what was interesting, I mean, I mean, for sure, our worldview is going to affect how we feel about politics. What I thought was really interesting in 2016 and with this presidential election is that you saw people both inside a, a Christian and evangelical Bible-believing camp and outside it, kind of expressing what I might call a materialist worldview. Mm-hmm. You know, like the world is going to crash and burn unless Donald Trump is elected or the world is going to crash and burn if Donald Trump Yeah, funny you should mention that. I hadn't noticed that. Oh, yes, I did. Every night on this show we noticed that. But continue <laughs> your point. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, but so, so you know, kind of moving through the middle of that and being someone who's who said, you know, I, I don't, re- and, and speaking personally, I don't really care for either of these candidates as candidates. Um, obviously, now I respect our incoming president because he is our incoming president. But I didn't care for either one of them as candidates for a lot of, I think, very valid reasons. But my world wasn't crashing and burning. And, um, and I felt like at any point where I opened up my inbox um, for about the last four months of the year, I was getting blasted from both sides on that, blasted for not um, thinking one way or the other, and and literally receiving mail, which you probably received too, that said, quite literally, the world, the this republic will end if one or the other of these candidates is elected. And I just don't think that that's true. And I think for two reasons: a, because of the God that we worship, who is a God who takes care of us and whose sovereignty over is, is over all of this, but B, because of the country that we live in. And mm. the country that we live in is incredibly resilient. And that, and I think that part of, we've come to this very strange moment of desperation in the middle of a moment of incredible prosperity and layers upon layers of, of um, benefit of being an American citizen. And it's almost like we're trying to find uh, something to tell us that the world is coming to an end. Minnie Bells is here with us from World Magazine, taking a look at some of the good news from 2016. Yes, apparently there actually was some. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Letting the lion out of its cage. The Steve Day Show. Back here with Minnie Belts from World Magazine looking at some of the good news from 2016 because apparently it was the worst year ever or something. Except you found some news that shows that maybe things are getting better. Share some of this with us. Yeah, pretty amazing. I really am a big fan of a website started by an economist whose name is Max Roser. It's called Our World in Data. And, you know, journalists love numbers and graphs and things that sort of get beyond uh, the headlines and behind the anecdotes and the opinions that people are telling us as we do interviews. And, you know, it, it just it shows on a number of issues that it gives a lot of graphs um, on population growth, life expectancy, child mortality. These are all things that globally are improving. That so you have to be willing to take a wide lens. And what I love about what Max Roser has done, um, you know, you pull up his, his charts for life expectancy and um, they start back in, <laughs> the graph starts back in the year 1543. 
So um, I, I think we need this wide-angle lens right now. Uh, I, I think it helps give us perspective on the world that we live in currently. Some good news from Iraq, some good news from uh, from Central America. Can you share that with our audience? Sure. Well, in Central America, we, uh, we saw the conclusion of the world's longest-running civil war. The war between the government in Colombia and the FARC rebels has been going on as, as long as I've been an adult, which is a pretty long time now. And um, we saw some fits and starts, but we did see a peace agreement. We saw the, the opposing sides sitting together at the table. The, um, that agreement was initially thrown out when it went to a referendum, but now it's been voted back in. And so a new day in Colombia, a country that has been beset by guerrilla fighting, by uh, drug trafficking and problems related to that. So a new day there. And then in Iraq, something that's been much more in the news is that we finally saw uh, the, the Iraqi army with support from a number of militias and the United States move into Nineveh Plain and Mosul and begin to take territory back from uh, ISIS or Islamic State. And this was a dramatic thing to see happen. You know, two years ago when ISIS was on the move and had declared its global caliphate, it controlled an area about the size of New England. And that was pretty scary. That was the first time that we had seen a terrorist organization actually conquer, take, hold territory. This was a new phenomenon. And what we're seeing now is painful. It's politically really tough, and I think it is probably going to be the number one issue facing incoming Trump administration as to how to, how to uh, sort of move this part of the world into the future. Um, but we saw ISIS roll back, and we saw sort of the, the territory be chipped away. Um, I'm getting things that just encourage me every day from the middle of Iraq, the Nineveh Plain area, where um, a lot of ancient Christian Yazidi villages were just obliterated by ISIS. Someone sent me pictures of a group of teenagers cleaning up their village and taking paint cans, painting over the walls where ISIS had scribbled ugly uh, slogans against Christians, taking paint cans and painting over, their, over those and starting all over again. Hmm. How hard did you have to look for this good news? Because <laughs> you know, well, you know, my follow-up question is going to be obviously, but d- but answer this one first. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I mean, not hard and hard, and and I'll tell you, I, I mean, it was a little bit convicting to me because it it just told me that as a journalist, I'm so uh, I'm, I'm I'm so geared, I'm so in the habit to looking at uh, you know what bleeds leads. And, uh, and, and really focusing on the blood and the guts of life instead of focusing on some of these kinds of things that we're talking about. It was like, um, you know, like, like training a, a, a marathon runner to run a 50 yard dash. And, and so it was a good, good muscle building exercise for me. And I find myself now, I, I do a, a regular uh, thing called Globetrot where I put, you know, it's a, it's a global news summary really looking for good news because it's out there and and there's a lot of it actually but, but how much for it often enough how much mm-hmm. do do people really want it because I, you know I was listening to yeah. 
I, when I'm not working, I, I get away from this stuff so I can, you know, have a life. And so I'm at the gym yesterday. I'm listening to a college basketball podcast and a renowned college basketball writer is the co-host of this. And he's lamenting how everything's negative and clickbait and we blow Grayson Allen, the Duke player, tripping guys into World War III. And he said he talked to a friend of his who's the college basketball writer at the New York Times or some big publication. He said, well, I'm with you, but the reality is when I write this stuff, it gets a lot more clicks than when I don't. And so that's what I write because my job is to get clicks. And so my, my, my question along these lines to you is, if you know what, what kind of response traffic does an article that says, hey, we missed a bunch of good news last year get compared to when you write uh, you know, that uh, if, if we don't win this election, Western civilization's at an end. You know what I'm saying? I mean, when you, when you, when you, if, sure. compared to raising the alarm bells, whether justified or not, and, and then showing mm-hmm. good news, how many people really want to read good news? Well, I mean, it got me on your show the first time, I think. So I consider that column, I consider it a winner. No, I I mean, but but in reality, I mean, for one thing, I'm not out to win a popularity contest and I'm not doing uh, clickbait journalism, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, I'm out to tell people things that are going to help them in their lives and report on things that they may not know unless someone takes the time to dig in and find these things and tell them. Um, I think also, as I talk to people and I, you know, I'm a mom, I'm a wife, I, I have another life too. And I'm, I'm in my neighborhood and, um, doing, doing my life. People are weary of all this bad news and all this doom and gloom. People want, uh, and deserve, I think a real view of what's going on in the world. And that has to include the good news. And so if, if other people want to read the doom and gloom stuff, they've got plenty of places to go for it. Well said, Mindy Belts from World Magazine, looking at some of the good news that we missed from 2016. Mindy, thanks for joining us uh, tonight and being a part of the show. We do appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. Listening to Steve Dace. Liberty has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. This is Steve Dace. All right, back here to wrap it up tonight on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. And now is the time when we find out what did we learn here this evening. So, gentlemen, what we did, what did we learn? Todd, I'll start with you. Convention of the States. I think your question concerning what legs does this have now that Donald Trump won is on target. These folks are going to have to really want it bad. I mean, really want it bad to make this happen at this point. I don't think Donald Trump will want it. I don't think he knows what a convention of the states is. And so there's all kinds of people who would be passionate about it if they were on the losing side. This would be their game plan. But even though they believe in it, believe in its the possibilities of it being successful, they also will err on the side of wanting to be the team player, they'll default to that. I, I just, I can't even imagine a scenario where this happens now. 
See, if I was advising Trump, I'd tell him to put the full weight of the White House behind it. I mean, listen, you're, if you're looking for maximum impact with minimal accountability, instead of, instead of having to fight all of these various wedge issues, just, just say, hey, man, we're passing the hot potato. You guys down in the state legislatures ought to handle this. Put the full weight of the White House behind it. That's what I'd tell them to do. The guy that is encouraging tariffs is not suddenly going to get behind convention of the states. It's not going to happen. All right. Well, then he'll end up with many, many hot potatoes in his lap for the next four years then. Aaron. Second part of uh, our conversation or your conversation with Matt Walsh when we uh, talked about what would be seen as uh, successful for the uh, Donald Trump uh, administration or how how he's going to be judged eventually. Eventually, it will be done to what he does. will come down uh, to what he does. I think it's really only going to come down to one thing that he can affect or at least um, champion, and that's uh, taxes or at least getting rid of some taxes and regulations like Obamacare. When pe- if people in a year or two years or three years have more money in their wallet, they're not really going to care what the heck else Donald Trump does, what he stands for, what he doesn't stand for, so long as they have more money. That's just that... To me, that's that's the only thing that this uh, that that this whole presidency is going to be judged by, in, in reality. People will say it's about um, you know whether or not he protected the border or did this or that or stood up for this or that. Really, I think it all comes down to money because our our culture has devolved to the point where it's you know uh, it's it's really just about that. You're exactly right, but that doesn't mean that these sorts of scandals cannot get in the way of him making the trains run on time. Listen. Yeah. Look how colossally weak of a candidate Hillary was. She had every advantage in the world. Looks like she had the thing wrapped up. We get one letter from James Comey a week before the election. The whole damn thing implodes like a souffle. Okay? And keep, it, and, and, and keep that in mind. Because g- despite how weak of a candidate she was, Trump nearly blew this on the, on, the, on, the, on the con family. Nearly blew this on the Mexican judge. Nearly blew this on the grab them by the this or that. His personal issues nearly blew an election against a colossally weak candidate. So absolutely they can get in the way of him being an effective president. And that is something his team need to be, needs to be aware of. John 317. You're listening to Steve Dace. 